Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Top of the morning to you and welcome to Africa, rise and shine right here on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. This broadcast is coming to you live from Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and 11925 kHz on the 25-meter band to Far West Africa as well as on DSTV's audio bouquet, Channel 802. My name is Kahisho Sekhetelo in studio today with Amanda Machaka, Tabiso Lohoko and Fikile Lengwati. Your top stories on Africa Rise and Shine this hour. Al-Shabaab militants claim responsibility for deadly Nairobi hotel attack. Ivory Coast former president Lorraine Bagbo acquitted of war crimes. 
UK Prime Minister Theresa May faces a no-confidence vote. Looking at your economics news, UK watchdog downgrades probe into Credit Suisse over Mozambique loans. And looking at your sports news, South African soccer legend Phil Masinga to be given a provincial official funeral. But first, here's Amanda Machaka with the news. Thank you, Kakisho. Good morning. Kenya's death toll has risen to 14 after the explosions and gunfire in the capital, Nairobi. On Tuesday, four men stormed a hotel complex with explosives and bullets, sending bystanders diving for cover and trapping civilians inside. Al-Shabaab militant group has claimed responsibility for the attack. More than 100 civilians were rescued in the middle of the night. The attack happens exactly three years since more than 100 Kenyan soldiers died inside Somalia in their military camp, when they were ambushed by al-Shabaab militants. Sarah Kimani has more. They shot indiscriminately uh, inside a restaurant called the Secret Garden Restaurant, and about five people died inside that restaurant. We also were able to see a dismembered limb of that man who is said to have uh, detonated his suicide vest inside the foyer of the hotel. A lot of plainclothes uh, police officers and also various embassy officials who were armed had already started rescuing uh, those people they could from inside the various complexes. Now, where the attack happened uh, has a restaurant, it has a, a hotel with accommodation facilities. It has departmental stores. So it is a big, big place. And it is still not clear how many people were there when the attack happened. Kenya is part of a regional peacekeeping operation that supports the Somali government in its battle against Al-Shabaab. Meanwhile, the chairperson of the Commission of the African Union, Mustafaki Mahamad, has strongly condemned the terrorist attacks in Nairobi. Mahamad has commended the swift response by Kenyan security forces and expressed the solidarity of the AU with the government and people of Kenya. He says the AU remains committed to stabilizing the situation in Somalia and the fight against al-Shabaab through its mission in Somalia, Amisom. The Southern African Development Community, SADC, has called for an emergency meeting over the situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. SADC wants the meeting to be held in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, on Thursday. This after the runner-up in the disputed election, Martin Fayulu, filed a complaint alleging fraud in the vote counting process and calling for a recount. Felix Chisekedi was declared the winner of the vote, which was marred by violence and allegations of widespread irregularities. Fayulu alleges that Chisekedi's win was the result of a deal between Chisekedi and outgoing President Joseph Kabila. Sadek is also considering sending a mediation team to the DRC. Soldiers are patrolling the streets of Zimbabwe's capital Harare as confrontations with protesters boil over amid protests over the country's collapsing economy. Banks, schools and businesses remained closed a day after the protests turned deadly. Three people were killed during Monday's unrest, which the government has labelled acts of terror. Zimbabweans say President Emerson Nangagwa has failed to live up to his pre-election promises of stimulating the economy. This after he announced steep increases in the price of fuel. And Sudanese police have fired tear gas at crowds of people chanting peace, justice, freedom. 
in the capital as organizers of anti-government demonstrations called for new protests. Men and women had gathered in Khartoum's southern business district of El Kalakla, but they were quickly confronted by riot police with tear gas. At least 24 people have died in the protests, which swiftly turned into nationwide rallies in which demonstrators called on President Omar al-Bashir to step down. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaga. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Your top story on Africa Rise and Shine this hour. Suspected Al-Shabaab militants attacked a hotel and office block complex in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, yesterday, killing at least seven people. This comes a day after a court ruled that three suspects had a case to answer for a similar attack carried out at the Westgate Mall in 2013. Police said armed assailants detonated explosives outside the complex building and then shot their way into a restaurant and offices in the complex. Sarah Kimani reports from Nairobi. The afternoon calm in the upmarket Riverside Drive in Nairobi was stirred by an explosion which was closely followed by gunfire. Smoke billowed from the building which houses a luxury hotel, restaurants, departmental stores and an office complex. At the entrance, a huge fire as first responders, security officers and journalists made their way into the hotel. I currently don't know at all what's going on but I just have shots. Gunshots. What? It looks like a terrorist attack. Yeah. Or oh, they're after something, I don't know what. Where were you? When it was we, we were our residents there. Yeah. What did you hear? I cannot speak further, that's all I can say. We just thank God. Nothing else to say. The attack came yesterday after a court in Nairobi ruled that three suspects linked to the deadly 2013 Westgate Mall attack had a case to answer. It also happened on the third anniversary of the Elade attack in which more than 70 Kenyan soldiers were killed by Al-Shabaab militants. Several people were evacuated out of the building. Trust me, it's not your day today, mama. Not today, my sister. Today you're not dying. You're not dying today. All right, medic! Ambulance! Several people were evacuated out of the building, but three hours after the attack, the assailants were still holed up in the hotel. Joseph Boynet is the Inspector General of Police in Kenya. I would like to confirm that the ongoing operations to respond to the attack that happened at that hotel complex has made considerable progress in containing the situation and various premises have been secured that had been taken over by the criminals. We can now confirm that this criminal activity commenced at about three o'clock in a coordinated fashion that began with an attack at INM Bank with an explosion that targeted three vehicles in the parking lot and a suicide explosion in the foyer of Tusit Hotel where a number of guests suffered severe injuries.
However, owing to the swift and targeted response by our security agencies, the situation has been largely contained and six out of the seven floors of the hotel building has been secured. And as I said, the operation to continues to secure the remaining outbuildings in the, in the complex. Police say one person was arrested in connection with the attack. Sarah Kimani, SABC News, Kenya. Now, there have so far been conflicting figures on the death toll following a terror attack in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, yesterday. Gunmen blasted their way into a hotel and office complex, killing civilians. An attack claimed by Somali-based Islamist group Al-Shabaab. We are now joined on the line from uh, the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, by our correspondent, James Shimanyula, for the latest on this developing story. Good morning, James. It's not a good morning in Nairobi. It may be good where you are. I say that because the attack that started more than 15 years, I mean, more than 15 hours ago, I'm sorry, is still continuing. The Somali uh, suspected Al-Shabaab are still um, uh, holding uh, civilians uh, in a place which police are trying to penetrate or security personnel are trying to penetrate to reach and you know the main mission by security personnel is to rescue civilians that is why it is taking a very long time for the siege to continue so So far the authorities have not said how many people died officially you had um, I've just had uh, Sarah Kimani reporting for SABC saying that, um, uh, I mean, uh, having the Interior Minister saying that um, the situation has been contained, it has not to be honest with you. The Al-Shabaab suspected terrorists who are being referred to as suspected terrorists as we speak are still holed up somewhere in that huge complex. So things are still unfolding, unfortunately, slowly. So, James, just to clarify, uh, is this a separate uh, attack from the initial attack which happened at the hotel and office complex? No, it is an extension of the original attack. The point is that we had, I'm sorry, we had four attackers invading the place. One of them blew himself up yesterday. And today, we still have three footages of CCTV show that three of them are still there. And those are the ones that police are trying to look for so that they can either kill them or arrest them. But the problem is that they have held civilians as hostages. So the situation is still unfolding, as I said. Right. And now, uh, James, uh, do we know uh, the number of uh, civilians that are being held hostage, uh, as well as the number of uh, civilians that, uh, you know, that have uh, uh, the number of confirmed casualties? Uh, are we any clearer on that?
I must say that the authorities have not released official figures, but speculation is high that uh, at least six people have been killed, or more than that. And then uh, we have more than 200 um, uh, people rescued by security men and women. And then uh, the, the most disturbing thing is that uh, relatives of people that are still held by the host, I mean by the Somali uh, Al-Shabaab uh, militants, are still reporting their people are nowhere to be seen. So in other words, there are still many people that uh, uh, their whereabouts remain unknown. So as we speak now, the drama continues with the security men and women taking uh, a lot of care to ensure that their main mission is to free civilians from the attackers than killing them or looking for ways of killing the attackers. And now, James, what would you say the general mood in the city is like? Uh, I mean, is business carrying on as usual in other parts of the city, or are there fears among uh, ordinary civilians of uh, other attacks elsewhere in the city? Uh, very low kind of degree of business is taking place uh, in central district of Nairobi, which is the capital. <clears throat> I'm sorry. But, you know, the place is west of the capital, closer to even uh, the place which was attacked, Westgate, which was attacked in 2013. So that particular area, Westgate area, and then the neighborhood, we have uh, some malls, you know, huge malls. About four of them, they were closed, and they have not opened even now for fear that there may be another plan in the pipeline. So the situation is... Uh, uh, relatively calm, but it tends in the, the area where the drama is uh, taking a place west of the capital, Nairobi. And we still have to uh, get an official uh, count of the people who have died. In the next uh, 10 or so minutes, uh, the Kenya branch of the Red Cross is going to have representative speaking about people that have been rescued, injured, and all that. So we are waiting for that. Great. Thank you very much, James. We'll leave it there for now. That's our correspondent, James Chimanyula, joining us on the line from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Stay tuned to Channel Africa. We'll certainly be, be, be keeping you abreast of the Nairobi situation as it unfolds. Former Ivorian President Lauren uh, Bagbo has been acquitted of four charges of crimes against humanity at the International Criminal Court. The first sitting president to be transferred to The Hague, he's been there since 2011 on the accusation that he incited the post-election violence of 2010 in the Ivory Coast after he lost an election runoff. 
Our international justice correspondent, Jack Perrock, reports from Brussels. There were celebrations by the defendants and their team in the court after ICC judges threw out the case against Lauren Bagbo even before the end of the trial. Kuno Tafasa is the ICC presiding judge. The chamber, by majority, hereby decides that the prosecutor has failed to satisfy the burden of proof to the requisite standard as foreseen in Article 66 of the Rome Statute. It means that the former Ivorian president and his co-defendant, youth leader Charles Blais Goudet, will be freed following an appeal by the prosecution. They've always denied the charges against them of rape, murder, attempted murder and persecution. The case has been thrown out because ICC judges say the prosecution didn't provide enough evidence to prove the speeches and conduct of these two men incited the post-election violence which left 3,000 people dead. Lauren Bagbo's case has been ongoing since he was arrested by UN forces in a compound controlled by his political rival and still incumbent president, Alassane Ouattara. Mr Bagbo is 73 years old now, but his release might see him return to political life in the Ivory Coast. And he might be tempted to do so by the huge support he's continued to enjoy throughout the trial, with hundreds regularly turning out in The Hague during his appearances. And this is how his supporters received the news of his acquittal in the Ivorian capital. It's another massive blow for the ICC prosecutor. The case against Kenyan President Kenyatta was dropped and former DRC Vice President Jean-Pierre Bemba had his conviction overturned. And this acquittal is just another embarrassment. Nicolo Figa Talamanca is the director of No Peace Without Justice. It's not just that the accused himself was not responsible for the actions and the crimes committed, but also that the prosecutor had not brought sufficient evidence of systematicity and pattern to demonstrate that the events actually constitute the crimes against humanity. For those who've travelled from Africa to The Hague to testify against Mr Bagbo, it will be hard for the ICC to recover its credibility in their eyes. But ICC judges will insist this acquittal is proof that the court is impartial, independent and judges only on evidence. Jack Parrick, SABC News, Brussels. The political environment is getting hot in Malawi, with 13 presidential candidates collecting nomination forms as of Tuesday, January 15. Malawi goes to the polls on May 21 this year to elect the president, members of parliament and ward councillors. Malawi follows first-past-the-post system, meaning whoever takes lead is declared winner. George Mahango reports from Blantyre. The latest to collect presidential nomination forms is United Democratic Front President Tatupele Molozi, son to former President Bakele Molozi. The Malawi Electoral Commission confirmed that Molozi, who is also Minister of Health in the current government, is one of the 13 candidates who have collected nomination papers. Morose's United Democratic Front is in an alliance with the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, DPP, and reports suggest that the two parties want to continue working together during these polls. President Peter Mtariga of DPP, Malawi's Vice President Saulos Chilima, who will stand on his newly formed United Transformation Movement, and former President Joyce Banda of the People's Party, have also collected their nomination papers. 
Surprisingly, former President Joyce Banda has candidly said she is interested to run for presidency to turn things around for the country. Banda has never won the presidential race but took power in 2012 following the death of Bingu Wamutarika, who died while in office after heading up Malawi since 2004. Banda thinks her coming back is aimed at fixing what she said, the ailing economy and corrupt practices that she said are happening at Capitol Hill. I have internalized what's going on. I have looked around. I have listened to what my party, People's Party, is saying and what all Malawians are saying. What is the landscape on the ground? That will have to be decided here. But University of Malawi political scientist Ernest Tindwa thinks that Banda's chances to win the presidential race are slim. If he joins Banda participates, it, it will be much more of a threat in my view to DPP because he's likely to get some uh, relatively uh, a, a good vote. Certainly, she, she, she will claim some significant votes, especially in Zomba. And as well as we Machinga, that would be made worse for DPP if uh, Adubere also decides to, to sit for UDF. So our presence on the ballot have an influence in terms of electoral outcome. In other words, the beneficiary, in my view, would be MCP. Lazarus Chakwera of the main opposition Malay Congress Party MCP was the first to collect nomination papers. The party liberated Malawians from Britain colonial masters. MCP spokesperson Maurice Montari thinks the party is ready to govern. As a party, we're not shaken. Neither are we surprised because uh, anybody in this country is free to express their uh, interest, free uh, to aspire for any position uh, in as far as uh, the constitution is, uh, is concerned. But suffice to say that uh, uh, the Malawi Congress Party uh, feels and strongly so that we are the only hope for this country when it comes to the 2019 tripartite elections. Others that have collected nomination papers are former Vice President Dr. Kasim Chirumpa of Tikonze People's Movement, TPM, Democratic Progressive Party's Congress, Chris Daza, United Independence Party, Chimbuna Belekia, and Peter Gwani of Mbakuwaku Movement for Development. The list also includes four independent candidates, Henry Jailos Mbewe, Smart Swira, Pastor Baxter Boyd Natulu and Ras Chikomeni David Chirwa. For parliamentary candidates or aspiring candidates who will contest on political party tickets are collecting their nomination papers through their party secretary generals. According to the electoral body, persons with disabilities need to get a letter from the Federation of Disability Organization in Malawi, Fedoma, to qualify for the 50% discount on nomination fees. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitonjoe for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Mohango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa.
On the other side of the half-hour mark, Tabiso Lohoko will bring you economics news and Fikile Lengwati has your sporting update. Do stay tuned for that. This is Africa Rise and Shine right here on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. The African Union Commission says a planning committee will discuss allegations of sexual harassment at the commission as it makes preparations for the upcoming African Union Summit. The Committee of Ambassadors from African Member States have begun planning agenda items for the summit in February. Koleta Wanjohi reports from Addis Ababa. Last year, an anonymous letter to the leadership of the African Union Commission alleged that female workers at the commission were being sexually harassed. Investigations were launched into the matter in May and concluded in November of the same year. The AU Commission's Deputy Chairperson Kwesi Kwati says this will be tabled for discussion by the Committee of African Ambassadors as they prepare the agenda for next month's AU Summit. The chairperson instituted um, an inquiry made up of three eminent African lady jurists. They came out with a report which is very distressing. The report shows that there was systematic discrimination against ladies, against young ladies, to do with recruitment, to do with traveling, to do with all kinds. He adds that the commission wants to protect its image that has been tainted by the sexual allegations and be seen to stand by gender equality. The chairperson has studied the report and we intend, according to the recommendations of the jurists who did the report, to go further, identify those issues and address them immediately. There were several classes, some have to be dealt with immediately, some are institutional matters which have been addressed at the long term, some might even involve judicial and prosecutorial matters. The sexual harassment report is one of the many items the committee is considering for the upcoming summit agenda. Hope Tumukunde Gasatura is the Rwanda representative to the AU and the chair of the committee. Among the substantive items to be discussed here are different reports of the PRC subcommittees, also reports of the specialized technical committees, uh, also reports of the commission, uh, different departments, and AU organs and specialized agencies, as well as items proposed by member states. The committee is also likely to discuss progress of ratifications of the continental free trade area, which still needs four votes. There is concern that no country from North Africa has come on board. Reports on conflicts in countries like South Sudan, the Sahel region and Somalia may also be considered. It is also highly likely that the committee will give priority to discussions about the ongoing tension in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where dispute over the recent president's elections continue to raise concern. Koletwanjohi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Free capitalism 
is about the intersection of economic prosperity and social wealth. On the 21st of this month, the Shared Value Africa Initiative Summit will take place at Lily's Leaf Farm just outside the city of Johannesburg in South Africa. High-powered business people of all ages will meet to strategically assess the challenges of facing business on our continent and set an agenda for 2019 to 2020. If you cannot make it, do not worry. Join Channel Africa from 1100 hours to 1200 hours Central African time for live coverage of the event. Together, we can create the Africa we want and build shared value ecosystems across the continent to grow the Africa economy for all. So join us on the 21st of January for the Shared Value Africa Initiative Summit. Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's half past eight Central African time. Amanda Manchaka with your news headlines. Thank you, Kahisho. Good morning. The Kenyan authorities are reviewing their security strategy following explosions and gunfire in the capital, Nairobi, in which 15 people were killed. The Southern African Development Community has called for an emergency meeting over the situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo following a disputed election result, and British Prime Minister Theresa May calls for cross-party talks after members of Parliament inflicted a crushing defeat on her government over its Brexit deal. Details of these and other stories at the top of the hour. Thank you, Amanda. The World Health Organization says although Ebola cases are decreasing in Beni in the Democratic Republic of Congo, political tensions continue to pose a serious threat to response operations. Beni has been the epicenter of the current Ebola outbreak in North Kivu and Itiru provinces, which has been going on for more than four months, killing over 300 people. For more on this, Jane Rabotata spoke to Tariq Jaserovic from the World Health Organization. Well, the data we have uh, as of 13th of January, so basically two days ago, there were a total of 649 Ebola cases, including 396 deaths. So far, 237 people have recovered from Ebola. So these are the, the latest numbers, but beyond the numbers, it is important to see the trend. Uh, we have seen a positive trend in the city of Beni, a decreased number of new cases. We are cautiously uh, welcoming uh, uh, this trend uh, because uh, we know that uh, because of the disruption of activities just before and during elections, we may uh, uh, have uh, seen the negative impact of 
those disruptions. But in any case, we are pleased to see that the, the number of cases in Beni City is decreasing, which shows in a way that uh, uh, when strong response is in place, uh, we can have a, a, a positive result. But now there is worry over the current situation in the country and how it might possibly disturb um, response operations and as a result um, lead to a spread in the outbreak. Let's talk about the challenges um, in response operations in the DRC right now. Yes, we have uh, been saying from the beginning of this outbreak that uh, we are operating in a very uh, challenging context. Uh, this is the active conflict area in North Kivu. There have been a number of security incidents over the past couple of months that have disrupted response activities. We have uh, cases in big cities such as uh, Butembo and Beni. Uh, we have a highly mobile population. We have a proximity of borders, and we also have an issue of infection prevention control measures in many of health facilities, uh, which obviously makes the new cases are coming from those facilities because uh, infection prevention and control measures are not being uh, put in place. So all these factors make that it's really difficult to be able to put uh, a right response activities everywhere at any time we need to go uh, to the community. We are still confident and that we will be able together with the Ministry of Health and other partners to end this outbreak uh, but we know that there are months ahead of us before we will be able to do that. Tariq, neighboring countries have been on high alert. South Sudan, Uganda and Rwanda. If we can talk about Uganda, you were just telling me earlier on about the um, order to screen everybody coming through Uganda and how this is a measure that has been since in place in November. Well, the screening of travelers has been put in place from the beginning of the outbreak and not only uh, at the border crossing with neighboring countries, uh, but also inside North Kivu on the roads between different cities. So, so far, 25 million travelers have been screened, either inside DR Congo or at the border crossing with neighboring countries. We have been working from the very beginning of the outbreak, from the August with neighboring countries, to strengthen their capacity to quickly detect and respond to any eventual Ebola case. This included training of health workers in the border areas, what we already mentioned, screening of travelers strengthening uh, capacities in terms of isolation units and equipment, and also vaccination of health workers. So Uganda already vaccinated more than 2,000 health workers working in an area close to DR Congo, and South Sudan is preparing to do the, the same. Uh, we have sent our teams to all neighboring countries to work with them to be sure, really, uh, if there is a case uh, of Ebola coming to them, that this case will be picked up very quickly and dealt with. And Luckily, so far, there were no cases in any of neighboring countries, but you may hear about alerts, and this is a good sign. It means that anyone who is crossing the border and who presents symptoms that are consistent with the Ebola disease is being picked up and is being checked and eventually tested. British Prime Minister Theresa May is set to face more drama today as a vote of no confidence is debated in her government. It was tabled by opposition Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn after what he calls a catastrophic defeat of a Brexit withdrawal agreement. A majority of 230 MPs voted against it, 118 of those members of her own Conservative Party. Our London correspondent Catherine Drew tells us more.
I think we can expect another day of drama in the British House of Parliament as Theresa May must return after that historic defeat, the worst defeat of any prime minister in modern times, and face the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, who, of course, on Tuesday night tabled a motion of no confidence against her government. Now, Theresa May is expected to survive, Theresa May and her government, they are expected to survive this vote. Of course, while many Conservative MPs voted against her Brexit withdrawal agreement, they're not likely to vote themselves out of a job. Also, the DUP, the small party from Northern Ireland, which props up the government while they were vehemently opposed to her Brexit proposals and voted against it, uh, they have said that they will support her in a confidence measure. So while this will take up a lot of time in the Parliament on Wednesday, uh, Theresa May and her government are expected to have the confidence of the House. Now, on Tuesday evening, she said if she were to win that, she would reach out to MPs from other parties uh, to discuss their ideas for Brexit. Now, that's something her critics say she hasn't really done before. But obviously, Theresa May realises she needs a coalition in the parliament to see what sort of Brexit MPs will vote for. And there's a lot of discussion about what that could look like, a Norway-style uh, deal, the relationship, something similar to the relationship Norway has uh, with the European Union, the Canada-style deal. So there's all sorts of different options. Now, Theresa May saying last night that she wasn't running down the clock, that she was committed to getting a deal. European officials, of course, in Brussels reacted immediately saying that the deal on the table is the best deal available. But of course, there is very likely to be discussions in Brussels as to what comes next. Uh, Theresa May is obliged to return to the House of uh, Commons within three working days to lay out her plan B. Now, if she survives this motion of no confidence, which she is expected to do, she must do that. And obviously, she's in a very tricky situation. So I think we can expect more drama today, and we'll have to see what Theresa May comes back with. The state of Palestine has taken over the mantle as chair of the Group of 77 and China at an official handing over ceremony at United Nations headquarters in New York. Palestine, which enjoys only observer status at the UN, will now lead the largest bloc of developing countries, which aims to promote collective economic and political interests at the world body. Sherwin Bryce Pease has more. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas was there in person to receive the chairman's gavel from outgoing chair Egypt. And while yet to be accorded full membership status at the United Nations, Palestine will now lead the largest group of developing nations at the world body. The right to development is a right we shall strive to strengthen and realize, together with all other human rights enshrined in international law, and in the G77's founding and central documents. In this regard, we must ensure and preserve this right also for peoples living under colonial and foreign occupation. In line with the decisions of the group, including the Johannesburg Plan of Action and in accordance with the relevant provisions of international law, including international humanitarian law. Palestine cannot be an exception. Abbas also used the platform to address the broader situation in the Middle East, in particular between his country and the State of Israel. 
Israel's continued colonization and occupation of the state of Palestine undermines our development and capacity for cooperation and coordination and obstructs cohesive future development for all peoples of the region. Here I reaffirm the State of Palestine's commitment to international law and legitimacy and to a peaceful solution that brings an end to the occupation and the realization of the independence of the State of Palestine with East Jerusalem as its capital, living side by side in peace and security with the State of Israel on the basis of the 1967 borders. The G77 plus China comprises 134 member states and has recognized Palestine since 1976. The UN chief Antonio Guterres also welcomed Palestine's chairmanship as a significant move. I look forward to continuing to work closely with the G77 and China in 2019 under the historic leadership of the state of Palestine. Palestine and its citizens have first-hand experience from the most challenging and dramatic global issues we face. You are well placed to take up the chairmanship of this important group of countries. Palestinians see their elevation to the chairmanship as an important achievement that asserts their identity on the international stage. In an earlier meeting with the UN chief, President Abbas also reportedly asked for the provision of an international protection force for Palestinians. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pease in New York. International rating agency Moody's has given Sub-Saharan Africa a negative outlook for 2019, with slow growth expected in Nigeria and South Africa, the region's biggest economies. The report released earlier this week shows that some African countries will continue to have credit challenges, this as a result of rising global trade tensions and constrained capital outflows. 15 of the 21 sovereigns that Moody's rated in the sub-Saharan Africa region have a stable outlook, while six hold a negative outlook. Amina Akram reports. Moody's expects the region's gradual economic recovery of 2018 to continue this year. With regional real GDP growth accelerating to 3.5% in 2019 from an estimated 2.8% in 2018. Owen Como is economist at Inkuzi Wealth Group. Sub-Saharan Africa still remains very exposed to these uh, uh, trade wars. Donald Trump's hand in managing the rest of the world has really been an aggressive one, and I think uh, we don't have much of cushion in terms of us being able to survive any further Donald Trump-inspired um, aggressive uh, measures, especially on the trade front. According to the report, Nigeria and South African economies will recover slowly. GDP in South Africa is expected to reach 1.3% from 0.5% last year. This is a slight improvement. Nigeria is expected to reach 2.3% in 2019 compared to 1.9% in 2018. Moody says South Africa has a more stable outlook going into 2019. The uh, statements that came through from Moody were rather encouraging for the country. We're coming in with a very big uh, ratings agency, giving us confidence that all the interventions the president has been doing would be useful for South Africa, and I think that is uh, uh, something that he's been working towards. And I think all of this comes through from the work that he did together with IMF, the visit with Christine Lagarde, and uh, the um, uh, obviously the capital raises that we've done last year, the investment summit, the job summit, etc., where we're starting to have a plan for South Africa. 
However, the outlook for some African countries remains negative on the back of political instability and lack of economic reforms. I think there's a lot of things still at play. The challenges in the DRC, the challenges in Zimbabwe, and the challenges in the other countries, you know, uh, Kenya, for example. You know, we, we think that growth might be subdued there. Personally, I view this as partly a function of the fact that these economies have already been growing fast enough uh, in the upper single digits, whereas... South Africa is growing at low single digits. We are coming off a very low base. Potentially, we could see our numbers looking much better than the numbers in these countries. But there's still a lot of work to be done. And that report was brought to you by Amina Akram in Johannesburg. Time now for your economics news update with Tabiso Lehoko. Good morning. The situation is still tense in Zimbabwe, where angry protesters have continued to raise their frustrations over the increase in fuel prices. On Tuesday, protesters in Zimbabwe's second-largest city of Bulawayo went on the rampage. Zenzel Ndebele reports from Bulawayo. We've had stairways for a lot of time and a number of times, but this one is different in the sense that uh, it's the young people who are mostly involved. So what they've done, they've barricaded roads, they're burning tires, they put huge uh, boulders and rocks uh, in the streets. So there's no car that can actually uh, leave western suburbs, and there's no car that can actually drive into western suburbs. I had gone yesterday in the western suburbs to... uh, check the situation. I had to leave my car there and walk five kilometers into town on foot because uh, uh, of the situation. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe's largest telecoms company, Econet Wireless Zimbabwe, has confirmed that the government ordered the suspension of the internet across all networks after violent protests against the embattled administration. Econet founder Strav Masiyua says the order was issued by State Security Minister Owen Ngobe in terms of the Interception of Communications Act. Zimbabweans have found themselves unable to access internet services on Tuesday morning. As a former information minister, Professor Jonathan Moyo has described the order as unconstitutional. Britain's financial watchdog has dropped a criminal probe into credit sewers related to an alleged fraud in Mozambique. In 2016, the Financial Conduct Authority launched an investigation into the Swiss Bank's activities in Mozambique where around 2 billion US dollars of loans to state-owned companies pushed the country into a debt crisis. Appearing before British lawmakers on Tuesday, FCA Chief Executive Andrew Bailey confirmed in newspaper report that the watchdog had downgraded its investigation in August. The former president of the Nigerian licensed custom agents, Olayiwola Shitu, has urged the federal government to support the adoption and implementation of a single-window system to enable swift movement of goods and services in the ports. He says that there is need for cooperation among the various stakeholders in the industry for the system to work. On the issue of tariffs, Shitu said that the appropriate stakeholders will put hands on deck and review the future of the tariff. 
Economist Oliver Sasser has urged the Zambian government and mining companies in the country to embrace dialogue in finding a lasting solution to the new mining tax regime, which has forced some firms to downsize their operations. Professor Sasser says the dialogue will allow both parties to find a lasting solution to the matter. He says dialogue must become an integral part of the solution to the mining tax regime. The U.S. dollar is trading at 362.35 Nigerian Naira, 10.29 Botswana Pula at 101 Zambian shillings, rather Kenyan shillings, and 11.87 Zambian guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.70 Brazilian roll, 67 Russian ruble, 70.85 Indian rupee and uh, 6.75 Chinese yuan and 13.77 South African rand. The US dollar is trading at 77 pence to the British pound, 87 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,288. Platinum, $7.95 pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at $60.53 a barrel. You're listening to Channel Africa, coming live to you from an African perspective. Now going from the trading floors to the playing fields, here's Figile Lengwati with your sporting update. First up in our sports update, we begin with football news. South African soccer legend Philman Chipamasinga will be given a provincial official funeral when he is laid to rest in Klagsdorp in the northwest province of South Africa next week, Thursday. The National Sports Ministry confirmed that the request for a provincial official funeral has been sent to President Cyril Ramaphosa and it is expected to be given the green light. Sports Ministry spokesman Vuyo Maga said it will be in no time until South Africans are brought into confidence that the request has been approved by the President. The family has also indicated that the memorial service will be held in Johannesburg on Friday and another one will be held in Northwest next Tuesday. South African national women's football team Banyana Banyana will be playing two high-profile friendlies against European opposition in Cape Town this coming week. And Safa will be using these two games to honor two political icons, Winnie Matigzela Mandela and Albertina Sisulu. Speaking at a press conference, South African Football Association President Denny Jordan says these Banyana matches are a wonderful opportunity for South Africans to celebrate these two iconic women. We are here also to, to honor to other uh, outstanding families in the history of uh, South Africa, and that is the Mandela family and the Sisulu family, and specifically uh, Winnie Mandela and Albertina Sisulu. These are uh, giants in the history. I had the good fortune in 1994, both of us, we were very much younger, uh, Honorable Minister, uh, we were members of parliament with all of the elders uh, in that parliament in 1994. Uh, and it was just wonderful to engage with them, uh, to listen to them, to see how they conduct themselves as, 
a typical South African with grace, with dignity, with integrity, uh, and always putting the interest of the country first. Uh, and we cannot let these memories uh, just disappear. And so a South African Football Association, we uh, spoke to the families, and I'm happy that they both agree. Banyana coach Desiree Ellis is very excited about these two games and says she's looking forward to be part of these historic friendlies. Very excited. Um, I know the Netherlands coach really well. Sanina Wichman will be part of the coaching, uh, FIFA coaching uh, mentorship program. So we've met on a couple of occasions. We met at the draw as well. Um, and uh, we've played them before in the Netherlands in 2016. Um, obviously, a lot of things have changed since then. Um, she wasn't the coach back then, but a former international as well, quality player. Um, and for us to get the stock friendlies like so early in the year, it's really exciting. And on top of it, two iconic women in South Africa, uh, Winnie Mandela and Albertina Sasulu. I mean, they fought for opportunities like this, and now we're reaping the rewards. So what a way to honour them, you know. Um, and the Winnie Mandela challenge is an annual one. Um, never to be forgotten. The same with Albertina Susulu. So we're very thankful and grateful to be part of um, this uh, memorial, a memorable um, moment in, uh, in South Africa. And Tennis News fifth seed Kevin Anderson of South Africa was sent packing from the Australian Open in round two today with American Francis Tiafoe prevailing 4-6-6-4, and 7-5. A South African a Wimbledon finalist last year struggled with an elbow injury early in the clash and couldn't cope with Tiafoe's power and finesse. Well, number 39 Tiafoe, who is into the third round at Melbourne Park for the first time, equaling his best-ever Grand Slam result. Next plays veteran Italian Andrea Sepi. And lastly, double defending champion Roger Federer weathered a stand test from the impressive Dan Evans, but wore down the British qualifier 7-6-5, 7-6-3 and 6-3 to reach the third round of the Australian Open. Here is Roger Federer. Well, I think I couldn't pull away maybe early in the match. You know, it always helps when you, you know, sneak in a quick break, win that first set and then, you know, maybe start pressing even more so and... Uh, I might have had that, you know, obviously midway through the second set, and I think maybe if I am able to close out that second set, things are maybe going a bit smoother. But, you know, I think he played very well. Um, it was, uh, like I said, hard to, to pull away his credit. Um, I thought I played well. So uh, in the beginning, maybe also a bit of the day session, a bit of the breeze, you know, um, him playing well, and margins are slim. If you don't win those uh, set points like I had at the beginning of that first set, you know, Next thing you know, you could be down two sets to love, but I was, I was happy to win that first set. That was big. That's your spot news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka. Your top story on Africa Rise and Shine this hour. Al-Shabaab militants claim responsibility for deadly Nairobi hotel attack. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Kakisho Sekhetelo, our producers, Pumoto Ramagaza and Komoto Mupulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, 
thank you very much for listening we do welcome your comments about our show you can send us a whatsapp to this number plus two seven seven six three double zero double three two seven you can also tweet us and follow us at rise shine uh, at rise shine africa is the handle or send us an email to info at channelafrica.org now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa is Busim Klongo with a song titled Tingi Tingi.
morning and welcome to Channel Africa, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. First, let's cross over to the news desk for the latest news from Africa and abroad. Top stories, AU condemns terrorist attacks in Kenya. Sadek calls for emergency meeting over the situation in the DRC following disputed election results. And Zimbabwe soldiers patrol the streets of the capital Harare amid protests over the country's collapsing economy. Good morning, I'm Amanda Machaga. Kenyan authorities are reviewing their security strategy following explosions and gunfire in the capital, Nairobi. There are conflicting figures, with some sources putting the figure at 15. In Tuesday's attack, four men stormed a hotel complex with explosives and bullets, sending bystanders diving for cover and trapping civilians inside. Al-Shabaab militant group, which carried out an attack, A notorious assault on a Nairobi shopping mall has claimed responsibility for the attack. More than 100 civilians were rescued in the middle of the night. The attack happens exactly three years since more than 100 Kenyan soldiers died inside Somalia in their military camp when they were ambushed by Al-Shabaab militants. Sarah Kimani has more. A lot of people, however, are saying that they still cannot trace their loved ones. The Kenya Red Cross Society has set up a tracing desk and tracing numbers for those who still do not know where their loved ones are and will only begin to get a sense of who is missing or who lost their loved one later today. Meanwhile, the chairperson of the Commission of the African Union, Musa Faki Mohamed, has strongly condemned the terrorist attacks in Nairobi. Mohamed has commended the swift response by Kenyan security forces and expressed the solidarity of the AU with the government and people of Kenya. He says the AU remains committed to stabilizing the situation in Somalia and the fight against Al-Shabaab through its mission in Somalia, Emerson. The Southern African Development Community, SADC, has called for an emergency meeting over the situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. SADC wants the meeting to be held in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, on Thursday. This after the runner-up in the disputed election, Martin Fayulu, filed a complaint alleging fraud in the vote-counting process and calling for a recount. Felix Chisekedi was declared the winner of the vote, which was marred by violence and allegations of widespread irregularities. Fayulu alleges that Chisekedi's win was the result of a deal between Chisekedi and outgoing President Joseph Kabila. Sadek is also considering sending a mediation team to the DRC. Soldiers are patrolling the streets of Zimbabwe's capital Harare as confrontations with protesters boil over amid protests over the country's collapsing economy. Banks, schools and businesses remained closed a day after the protests turned deadly. Three people were killed during Monday's unrest, which the government has labelled acts of terror. Zimbabweans say President Emerson Nangagwa has failed to live up to his pre-election promises of stimulating the economy. This after he announced steep increases in the price of fuel. And finally, South Africa's Commission of 